Would you take your scriptures, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 18. Would you give ear to the reading of God's Word? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you, were, where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Do you believe that I am in the father and the father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning to study your word. We come to learn more about you and your son. We ask you to open our hearts and prepare our minds to grow. Grant us the strength to take what we learn and apply it in our soul and to build our character such that it becomes a reflection of your character. We know, Lord, there is nowhere else we can gain such knowledge than it come from your word. May your grace fill us with all we need to serve you and your church. Give us insight this morning to see your truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We come this morning to John 14, verses 15 through 18. We, we come here to learn more about the way Christ Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross to prepare for us a place, a place with him in eternity. In this passage, we learn about Jesus' promise to send the church a new helper. Jesus opened this address in verse 12 with the words, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, as you know, these are the words Jesus always used when he was going to give his disciples a very important truth. 
F.B. Meyer in his commentary on John declares, These words are very becoming on the lips of our Lord, who in Revelation is called the Amen and the Faithful and True Witness. What we see in these words is our Lord's most solemn affirmation of the truth. The truth he, is, he's, he was fixing to speak. This truth is also an indication that something of importance is going to be revealed. We saw in our last communion sermon the concept that Jesus, because Jesus was returning to his Father, we as his followers would do the same works he did and even greater works. What we will be looking at this morning is the second part of this important revelation given us in verses 15 through 18. He turns from the works the disciples will be doing in their lives as believers. He turns to the precept that will guide them. He adds to this a reminder of duty. Verses 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Keeping the commandments of Christ is the way we work toward holiness in our lives. This is the way the faithful show their diligence in living the Christian life. As we delve into these four verses, we will learn more about our Lord and the works he did in preparing us to be his followers. First, we will learn about Christ's command. Second, we will examine Christ's intercession. Third, we will study the Spirit's indwelling. Fourth, we will look at how Christ comforts. Let's begin with verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. What we need to do is see that on this very night, a little over an hour before Jesus said this, he issued his new command. John 13, 14, 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, the word commandments can also be translated as precepts. They mean the, basically the same thing. In the Gospel of John, the word for commandments or precepts is translated, and it's used in, in three different ways, and you need to understand these ways. First, with respect to the charge given by the Sanhedrin, Second, with respect to the charge given by, to Jesus by the Father. And third, with respect to the precepts given by Jesus to his disciples. So we have uh, the Sanhedrin giving a charge to the people under them. That's the first one. The second was a charge given by the Father to the Son. And the third one was a precept just that Jesus gives to his disciples. You will note... These are three meanings that are very closely related. A legal commandment or order is issued by men who may or may not have an interest in those required to, to obey. There certainly was no evidence that the Sanhedrin cared much about the people they had charge over. William Henderson says, when used in this way, the word has the flavor of that which is outward, official, and codified. That's legal. It has a legalistic flavor to it. We have that in our government. Congress passes a law, we have to obey it. The charge given by the Father to the Son is for guidance. 
this guidance which the one sending through his love gives to the one who is sent. The Father sends the Son, the Son comes because of the Father, and the Father gives him commands to to do certain things when he comes. All of this is in complete harmony with the eternal plan that both parties had agreed on. The precept or command is a rule made by Jesus and shown by his example. He does this to show the regulation of the disciples' conduct, their attitude toward Christ, one another, and the world. This command of Christ grows out of his love for his disciples. He is guiding us with his commands to come into that perfect relationship with God, which shows that he loves us if he wants us to be there. We have seen two similar precepts in John 14, 1. Let, your heart be tr- let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Also in John 14, 11. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. The context of verses 14, 12 through 14 tells us that Jesus desires that his disciples keep believing on him. Now, why would he want them to do that? Because he's the only way. You can't come to the Father except through him. That they, He also wants them to continue to pray in his name. He also wants them to pray to him. These are all implied commands or precepts. In verse 15, we hear, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus is making it very clear that his commandments are what, are important in your life as a Christian. That's what you're going to build your life on. It's the commandments of Christ. In this world, everything we can see, hear, and feel is constantly changing. There is nothing worldly we can depend on forever. Even this world itself will be, in the end, destroyed. What is there that can give us hope for an eternal future? This is where the Bible becomes so very important. The Bible is God's revelation of himself. He's teaching us about him. It paints for us a picture of ourselves and our needs before a holy God. In the Old Testament, it shows us our sins and our need to help overcome sin and then points us to the one who will deliver us from our sins. The New Testament brings forth the one assigned to bring us our deliverance. That one is Jesus Christ. Christ comes to open the hearts of his people and to show them the way to eternal life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. (coughs) Do you see yourself as a sinner, lost and without hope in and of yourself? Is there anything else you can put your hope in for salvation than Jesus Christ? Do you desire with all of your heart to be delivered from the life of sin that you've been living in? Then turn away from your sins, repent, and look to Jesus Christ for salvation is found only in him. If you're saved and struggling with living the Christian life, then what you need to do is open your Bible and search out the commands of your Lord Jesus Christ. It is in these commands 
the commands of Christ, that you can find your way through this dark world of sin and into the light of eternity. One of the most important things for Christians to understand is that once God begins a good work in your life, he'll not stop until that work is complete. That is one of the messages this supper shows. Jesus was sent into this world to do for God's people what they could never do for themselves. How does he do these things for you? How does he do them for all of us? We know he lived the perfect life. He died the atoning death. He won the resurrection victory. And all of this, for those of us who could do none of these things for ourselves, yet that was not enough to keep us stable in our salvation. So when he returned to heaven, he took his seat at the Father's right hand to make intercession for us. He intercedes for sinners. I want you to turn over in your scriptures to Isaiah 53, 12. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Recognize, this is in the Old Testament. And what's it doing? It's pointing you to the one who will come and save your soul. This proves that the salvation of God's people was well developed in the Old Testament, and it leads all who will read it to Jesus Christ and his intercession. Jesus also intercedes for the weak believer, as he did for Peter after his denial. Luke twenty-two thirty-two. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. There are so many denominations out there today that believe you can lose your salvation. I think the situation that Peter let himself fall into by being where he should not have been because of a boast he should have never made. That was the picture for us all. We all make boasts we shouldn't make and let ourselves be drawn to places we should never go. Jesus knew us and our weakness, so he prepared to help us through with his intercession. Jesus even intercedes for his enemies as he did for those who hung him on the cross. Luke 23, 24. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. There could be no greater enemy of our Lord than those who would want to destroy him. We come face to face with many of these enemies in our everyday lives. I beg you, when you find such, that you be brave and you set them straight. Tell them the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done in your life. Let your witness stand out boldly in word and deed. And most of all, most of all, pray for the salvation of their soul, for that is Christ's example to us. Jesus also intercedes for his church, John 17, 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. The church in this world is filled with both believers and unbelievers. 
So it requires a lot of work to keep it on the right path. That work can only be done through the intercession of Christ for his church. What we learn in this is that our acceptance by God the Father is dependent on Christ's intercession. Romans 8, 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now this goes back to Isaiah 53, 12, showing that Isaiah, approximately 680 years prior to Christ's birth, knew what would be needed to build a church into God's people. What is the extent of Christ's intercession? Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The intercession of Christ is the greatest blessing a saved person can have. What we must understand in knowing Christ as intercessor is that he holds the office of high priest. Wilhelmus of Brackel, who was a 17th century Dutch reformer, says the office of high priest considered in particular consists of two elements, sacrifice and prayer. We need to keep that ever before us. That's what Christ is doing for us each and every day. Christ came to offer the perfect sacrifice an earthly priest could never offer. He also came to pray for his followers to be their intercessor before God. What we learn here is that the believer that keeps the commands or precepts of Christ will will receive a great blessing. That blessing is Jesus Christ interceding on their behalf. You have one sitting at the right hand of God the Father, speaking to the Father for you, Every minute of the day. Verse 16. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. You need to note the difference in how Jesus denotes the way the disciples pray over the way he prays. Now this is a little bit ticky as I've looked through a lot of different translations. It has Jesus saying, I will pray instead of I will request. Jesus used the verb ask in talking about the disciples' prayers. Here he shifts to the verb request when talking of his prayers concerning them. Understand the disciples are not on the same level as Jesus. We're not on the same level as as Jesus. Dr. Hendrickson says, we must implore. Jesus has a right to ask on terms of equality. Now, he and the Father are one, the same. So all he has to do is make a request. He doesn't have to go asking. He doesn't have to go begging. He doesn't have to implore. He just simply makes the request. The Father knows what the request is for, why the request is there. So the request is answered. Jesus, in speaking of his own prayers, always uses request rather than ask. So what is this request? It's a part and parcel of the intercession of Jesus. He requests of the Father, which is intercession. He intercedes on behalf of his disciples and his church throughout the ages. He gives them another helper. 
We now turn to the Spirit's indwelling. Verses 16b through 17. He will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus promises that he will be ever working for them. He will request the Father send them another helper. You must recognize that this is a work of Christ's intercession for his church. What we see in this that is that the Holy Spirit is not merely a power, but he's also a person just as Jesus and the Father are a person. In, you, in the use of the word another, we see it means one like myself. This one will take Christ's place here on earth and take over his work. Therefore, if Jesus is a person, the Holy Spirit must be a person. You can see throughout the Bible that personal attributes are given to the Spirit. The Father, the, the relationship between the Spirit and the Father and the Son are all shown as being of the same character. If Jesus is divine, the Spirit too must be divine. You can find all of this taught throughout both Testaments. The Spirit has divine names and divine attributes such as eternity, omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, and immutability. So they all have the same characteristics, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible shows this in first, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. And you've been here enough times, you know that's one of my favorite benedictions because it states clearly the three are one. Here in the Trinity clearly shown and each member is shown as equal to each other. The Father gives the Spirit an answer to the Son's request. The Spirit then proceeds from both the Father and the Son. He is the Spirit of the Father and the Son. He is the Spirit of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. They are all one. He represents them. He is the Spirit that comes to us. Romans 8 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Dr. Hendrickson says, the Holy Spirit is the person in whom the Father and Son meet one another. This is a place where you see the economic trinity to rest on the ontological trinity. It stands upon the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost, which shows his eternal procession from the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is here called the paraclete. The paraclete means he is one who is pulled aside to help. In this case, to help, in this case, to help the disciples and the church. He's there for that purpose. You can also find that in 1 John 2, 1, Jesus is called a paraclete himself. He is shown as the helper in regard to being an advocate or intercessor with the Father in the interest of the believer who has sinned. What we are being shown in these verses is that one helper is leaving with the clear purpose of sending forth another helper. 
Also, you can see that while the helper leaves, he will continue to be a helper, only working from the Father's side in heaven. The Holy Spirit, the other helper, will be helping here on earth. The first helper, that's Christ, pleads our case before God. He speaks on our behalf. He helps us. The second helper has come into the world, that's the Holy Spirit. He's taken up residence in the believer to never leave them, even throughout eternity. In other words, he pleads God's case before us. He's telling us what God wants us to know. Christ is before the Father, telling the Father what we need. So we've got two helpers, the Father at the right hand of uh, the Son, at the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit here on earth in hearts. The work done on that day, 50 days after Christ's resurrection, was a work that cannot be matched by anyone else. Pentecost is never to be repeated. It was a one-time event. It's the only time the Spirit was sent, and he has been with us ever since. This was the event that assured that as believers we could never be separated from our God because he will forever be in the heart of every believer. John 14, 17a. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Here's the paraclete is called the spirit of truth. Whenever you see that term, you understand it's talking about the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things yet to come. This clearly shows the Holy Spirit as a person. He has a work to do. What is that work? Dr. Hendrickson says his work is to guide his people into that realm of truth, which is embodied in Christ and in his redemption. John 17b, but you know him, for he dwells within you and will be in you. Here, Jesus confirms that as a believer in Jesus, you will recognize the spirit of truth. Why? Because God the Father, God the Son will send him into this world to dwell in the hearts of all believers. It is this very spirit that will guide you as you come to this table this morning. He will open your ears to hear and your heart to understand. You need to make sure that you're under, you understand how the Spirit works in your heart. The Spirit's indwelling is one of the wonderful things God has done to free you from yourself. If you can never leave, live your life good enough to save yourself, nor can you live your life after salvation good enough to be completely sanctified. Your salvation, as well as your sanctification, can never be earned by your own efforts. It can only come through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Christ brings you your salvation. The Holy Spirit is sent to sanctify you. The heart of this message is Christ's comforts. He will not leave you nor forsake you. He will be with you forever. Christ will forever be seated at the Father's right hand to make intercession for you and the Holy Spirit will forever be in your heart to help you understand God's love for you.
Verse 18, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. What Jesus is explaining here is that his departure will not be like a father who dies and leaves his children orphans. He says he will come back, but he will come back in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into the heart to reveal the Christ. He comes to glorify Christ for all he did to save your soul. He comes to apply Christ's merits to the believer's heart. He comes to make Christ's teaching effective in their lives. What you should know is when the Spirit is given, that is when Christ truly returns. We, what, what do we understand from this? I will come to you. If you really study these words, you will see that they are worthy of deity. He speaks as though he were always drawing close to those he loves. Christ is always present, yet he comes. The creator had always been present in his universe, but he came in each creative act. The lawgiver had always been present with his church in the wilderness, but he came down on Sinai in all of his glory. The deliverer was always present at the side of the shepherd king, but in answer to his cry for help, he came down riding upon a cherub flying on the wings of the wind. The Holy Spirit has been in this world since the first prayer was lifted before the eternal throne. An inspired speech was opened. But as Christ returned to heaven, the Spirit came down to sit in the flame on every bowed head. It is true that the preceding context refers to the outpouring of the Spirit. That's also true of the immediately following context. There, there would be no other way to show that the disciples were not left orphans. We understand at the close of the age, Jesus will return to this world and to the church. At Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out on the world and he chooses the church as his abode. What will be the results of this coming? The disciples will be understand that well, the disciples will understand what Christ told them in John 14:20. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What this shows, as Dr. Hendrickson says, the knowledge of the believer's intimate union with Christ the knowledge of the believer's intimate union with Christ was a fruit of Pentecost. What we take from this is that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, was planted in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ coming into our hearts, we would forever be remained, would have ever, ever have remained spiritually dead and blind to the things of God altogether. Therefore, to properly understand what Christ has promised, we must see the coming of the Holy Spirit as the spiritual return of Jesus Christ. This indeed was a second coming of our Lord in the Spirit. This carries with it the promise of the return of our Lord when this supper, which this supper points to. 
Yes, Jesus will return in a glorified bodily return. And it's something we must all be prepared for. It is the sending of the Holy Spirit that is our help in understanding the comfort our Lord gives through the Spirit. This table before you this morning is a picture of all our God has done to make our salvation a sure thing. Without the Holy Spirit, this supper would be nothing more than a rite. A rite or an ordinance, if you will, that people would come to to for only some property value. Value they can earn by their own behavior. It would therefore be holding no real hope. It would be only a false hope based on their own strength. This is what would make it worthless because only what is built upon Christ can have any value toward our life with God. As you come to this table this morning, I pray you come looking to Jesus Christ as the only source of your salvation. You are saved in Christ and in Christ alone. This table has no property value whatsoever. You don't earn one thing by coming to this table. You don't earn salvation. You don't earn sanctification. What you do is you come to this table rightly believing is you receive grace to help you grow stronger. It is an ordinance of the church because Jesus told us to do this as often as we will. This table is one of the, the two things Christ gave us as visual aids to our belief. The other was baptism, infant baptism. Observe this table and this ceremony with an open heart. It will help you to see your sin and your only hope of deliverance from that sin. It will help you to know the work Christ has undergone on your behalf. It will send you away with a deeper respect for God's grace. It will show you that the Spirit of Christ is the foundation upon which the supper is built. It will leave you with a love of Christ who returned in the Spirit to assure that your life will be a work of of grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do come this day to give thanks to you. We know you're the sovereign Lord Almighty and there is no other like you. We know you're good and your mercy is with us forever. We know you have called your people from the four corners of this world and given them new hearts. You have prepared for us a picture of your gospel on this table this morning. Open now the hearts of all that are yours and guide them to this table. Help them to remember their sin and their need of a Savior and show them clearly that Jesus Christ is that Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.